Hello, this is Michael Stone, the host of We Earth Radio, where we have conversations that make a difference. We're committed to bringing you leading edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. In our programs, we look for positive solutions to local and global issues that leave you touched, moved, and inspired to action. Our weekly guests include local and global experts and concerned citizens working together to heal the wounds that separate, alienate, and marginalize people. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to We Earth Radio. This is your host, Michael Stone, and I am excited to have Terry Real on. He is an internationally recognized family therapist, speaker, and author. He founded the Relational Life Institute, offering workshops for couples, individuals, and parents around the country, along with a professional training program for clinicians wanting to learn his RLT, Relational Life Therapy, methodology. A family therapist and teacher for more than 25 years, Terry is best-selling author of I Don't Want to Talk About It, Overcoming the Secret Legacy of Male Depression, The Straight Talking How Can I Get Through to You, Reconnecting Men and Women, and New Rules of Marriage, What You Need to Make Love Work, and his latest book, which we're going to talk about today, Us, Getting Past You and Me to Build a More Loving Relationship. Terry, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Michael. It's a joy to be here. Yeah, it's wonderful. I loved your book. And I wanted to start just talking about the title. So can you share with us a little bit about the difference between getting to us and the you and me distinction that you use in there? At the most basic level, uh, let's start with our body. The autonomic nervous system scans our body four times a second every second that we live, asking, am I safe, am I safe, am I safe, am I safe? And if the answer is yes, we stay seated in that part of us that I call in the book, the wise adult part of us, prefrontal cortex, the most mature part of the brain and the nervous system. The part of us that's here and now, that's not flooded with trauma, that can make deliberate decisions, the part of us that recognizes the relationship, the whole, whether we're talking about uh, the ecology of the planet or whether we're talking about the, our marriage or whether we're talking about our family, uh, the part of us that realizes that there is a, uh, a context of us together which is greater than either you or me. When the answer to the question, am I safe, kicks out as no, I'm not, we lose that prefrontal cortex, more primitive parts of our brain get triggered, and we go into automatic fight or flight, I call it you and me consciousness, we lose the whole, we lose the relationship, and it's about me, 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 and me versus you, zero sum, one of us wins, one of us loses. It's about survival. And so when we are triggered, and we all know that experience, I believe, when you're in the heat of the moment, the, uh, the more mature part of us shuts down and the less mature part of us takes over. You know that happens because it's automatic. It's knee-jerk. And you do the same damn thing you do every single time. 
fight, flight, or fix. Let me say that again. You either fight, screw me, screw you, you flee, and you can sit there six inches away from somebody and still flee. We call that stonewalling. Or you fix that codependent, oh my God, you're upset, let me let me take it away so that we can both be happy. One of those knee-jerk responses is what you're gonna do every single time. It comes directly from your childhood, your adaptation from trauma. When you are about me versus you, you are in trauma triggering. When you come out of trauma triggering in the present, in the here and now, in the spiritual centeredness, you're about us. And once you move from me versus you, win-lose, to us, our biosphere, our, our relationship, everything changes. You know, for example, and this is what I call learning to live relationally or learning to live eco ecologically. The relational answer to the question, who's right and who's wrong, for example, which is a you and me question, is who cares? It doesn't matter. What matters is how are we going to work like a team to make this issue work for both of us? And shifting out of you versus me, the individual versus the whole changes everything and kicks out a whole new repertoire of skills that very few people master in our culture because we live in a you and me culture. Wow, brilliant. So how is relational life therapy distinct from other forms of therapy? From other forms of therapy? Oh my gosh. You know, let me tell you the history. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a fun history. So back in the 90s, I wrote a book called I Don't Want to Talk About It. Uh, it was the first book ever written about male depression. Before that book, depression was seen as a female disease, uh, kind of like alcoholism was seen as a male disease. And uh, I had a part, I'm proud to say, in putting male depression on the map. There are an estimated 6 million depressed men in the, the States at any given time. So the book did really well. And I began to get uh, calls from Topeka and from British Columbia and from wherever saying, is there someone local who does the kind of work that you do? And I would refer them as best they can. After a while, the light uh, went off and I said, look, uh, if you have the resources and you're desperate enough, come to Boston, where I practice. And uh, what emerged was a two-day intervention. At the end of two days with me and the couple, we decided you're on track or you're getting a divorce. This was the last stop. Two things happened. One is uh, I, uh, I had remarkable success. And two is I broke just about all the rules I'd learned in couples therapy school. So here's some of the differences. One, we are not neutral. We take sides. All couples therapists are taught to be 50-50 every single minute of every session. It's nonsense. Sometimes problems are 70-30. Sometimes they're 99-1. You can be married to an untreated, unmedicated, raging, depressive alcoholic. And your quote-unquote contribution to your abusive relationship is that you're there. So we take sides. We divvy up what's going on and we deal with it. We're also not neutral in the sense that we don't hide behind a mask 
of that kind of, we're people with the people we work with. We're more like 12 step sponsors than traditional therapists. Look, if you grew up in a dysfunctional culture, so did I. If you grew up in a dysfunctional family, so did I. And the skills I'm teaching you are the skills I use in my marriage every day. In the days I don't use them, my wife, Belinda, and I look just as ugly as you two, but we use them most days and you don't. Let me teach you how to do this. So we're people. One of the things I say is I can't teach someone how to be relational and not be relational with them. And then another uh, big difference is that we look at both issues of shame, the one down that uh, all of psychology and self-help has been obsessed with for 50 years, helping people come up from that one down inferiority. But we also look at grandiosity, helping people come down from the one up of superiority, entitlement, irresponsibility, attack, and offensive behaviors. And as a couples therapist, if you can't help people come down from the one up, you cannot bring people into intimacy. And if you can't help people come down from the one up, you're going to be very ineffective with a lot of men. Because broad generalization, take it with a grain of salt, men in our culture tend to lead from the one up superior, entitled, grandiose position and have covert issues of shame. Whereas women tend to lead from the one down shame position and have covert issues of grandiosity. So you have to, you know, one of my pals, Carol Gilligan, said a beautiful thing. Love demands democracy. You cannot love from the one-up superior position or the one-down inferior position. Self-esteem is a social issue. You have to be same as, neither better nor worse than the person to the left or to the right of you. That's democracy. That's the essence of what democracy is. And I am talking about how to live a democratic life in your personal relationship. You stressed in the beginning about the importance of reconnecting with ourselves, our, our body, our emotions, and our thoughts, and as a foundation for having a good relationship. Could you speak to that a little bit? Well, our relationships in this culture, which is individualistic and patriarchal, that's the, that's the water we swim in. We're the fish and patriarchy and what I call in the book us, the toxic culture of individualism is the water that we're all swimming in. And in that water, uh, we are taught neither to have a good relationship with ourselves nor anyone else. Our relationships to relationship is passive. You get what you get and then you complain about it. That's gotta be the worst behavioral modification program I've ever heard. So start with ourselves. Self-esteem is the capacity to hold yourself lovingly, compassionately, even in the face of your screw ups and limitations. And who of us does that? I have to teach people how to do that. I have a saying, by and large, we hold ourselves the way we were held. And you have to have come from an uh, uh, unfortunately, unusually accepting, loving parental environment in order to internalize that 
and give that to yourself. And even if you have that, it's still hard to give that to yourself. So Michael, I want uh, your listeners, I say this every podcast, if your listeners get only one thing from this conversation, here's what I want them to get. It has the capacity to change your life. There is no redeeming value in harshness. There is nothing that harshness does, either between you and another or between your ears, that loving firmness doesn't do better. If it's harsh, it's off. You can be firm, you can have standards, you can strive for excellence, but there's nothing redeeming about harshness. So deharshify your relationship to yourself. Mm. One of the things I say to people is, if somebody outside of you talks the way you just talk to yourself, you would deck them. But because it's you talking to you, you think you can get away with it. I teach people to stand up to the harsh voices inside of them, soften them up. You don't need harshness with harshness. You need harshness with love. Soften them up. Listen to what they have to say. You know, uh, I'm an old guy. I'm 71 years old. At 71, I have a deal with the universe. If it's not kind, I'm not interested. Mm. And that includes the way I talk to myself as well. So I'll give myself a hard time about something. And I will literally say, because it's an immature part of me, it's a little boy part of me. I call it the adaptive child part. I will say to that part, you may have a point. I want to hear what you have to say. Say it kindly and I'll be able to listen to you. So I want us to practice nonviolence between our ears and between ourselves and others every day in our relationship. I love what you're saying. You brought up an important piece that I think is worth looking at, particularly people who have dealt with early trauma, the dysfunctional adaptive child and the wise adult and how we can manage those two in our uh, and the impact in our relationships. Yes. First of all, uh, I don't know whether I say this or I got it from Thomas Lubel, uh, <laughs> but here's the phrase. I teach my students to be respectful of the exquisite intelligence of the adaptive child. The adaptive child is who you cobble together as a version of an adult in the absence of healthy parenting or caregiving. It's a kid's version of an adult. And it's often black and white, extreme, harsh, rigid. It, it doesn't have the flexibility and nuance of a mature uh, adult. Most of the people that I see in my practice have lived most of their lives out of their adaptive child, thinking that's the wise adult, and it's not. And in fact, many of the people that I work with uh, are great successes in the world because the world mirrors the values of that adaptive child, but they make a, a mess of their personal lives and of their own relationship to themselves. That demands a more nuanced person at the wheel. And that adaptive child also has a vast intelligence. Uh, the nervous system, when it created the adaptive child, was protecting Maybe you can expand on that a little bit and the value of befriending that and recognizing that that's a really good thing 
that that child was there at that time. Yes. Uh, uh, yes. So let me tell you a story. This is the story I always use to illustrate the adaptive thought. True story. Couple on the brink of divorce. The husband, I write about this in the book too. The husband was a pathological liar. The wife said, ask him what kind of shoes he wears and he'll tell you they're not shoes, they're sneakers. He'll lie about anything. So, okay, he was an evader. He was the kind of guy I say, the sky is blue. He say, well, aquamarine. And lying is, is evasive. But the wise adult part of him did not lie. The wise adult part of us isn't a liar. It was the adaptive child. So I have a saying, show me the thumbprint and I'll tell you about the thumb. We learn these adaptations in relationship to someone. Mm -hmm. So if he has a black belt in evading, who was he evading? I say to him, who tried to control you growing up? Sure enough, his father, a military man, how he ate, how he drank, how he sat, his clothes, his courses, his friends, everything. I said, how did you cope with this incredibly controlling father? He looks at me and smiles and says, I lied. Brilliant. Perfect. Exactly the thing to do back then. But I have another saying, adaptive then, maladaptive now. You're not that little boy. Your wife is not your father. It's time for you to move beyond the strategy you evolved at four, five, six years old. So they come to me a few weeks later, and they're, they're all smiles, and they say they got it. I say, okay, there's a story here. Here's the story. The wife sent him to the grocery store with a list of 12 things, and true to form, he comes home with 11. Where's the bread? He said, every muscle and nerve in his body was screaming to say they were out of it. But in this moment, he took a breath. He screwed his courage to the sticking post. He looked at his wife and said, I forgot. Mm. The wife, it's absolutely true. The wife burst into tears and said, I've been waiting for this moment for 25 years. That's a moment of recovery, what I call relational recovery. That's a moment of moving beyond the adaptive child that served him so well when he was little that was threatening to end his marriage as an adult and move into us, into the prefrontal cortex, into the wise adult part of him that could make a better choice. And that's what this book is all about, how to make that better choice. Yeah, brilliant. It would be great if you would talk about, I love the term you use, the whoosh, and how to uh, have relational heroism and relational mindfulness when the whoosh comes up yeah great the whoosh w-h-o-o-s-h like a wave that comes up from the feet mm -hmm. we all know it boom instantaneous and that is the hallmark of the adaptive child it's automatic it's instantaneous it's visceral this is the thing you must do you better stand up to her god damn it or you better back down and placate her or you better run away or whatever it is the world will come to an end if you don't do this that's the compulsion, if you will, of that adaptive child part of us, whoosh, the wave. So what do you do? Well, you feel the wave. I'm not one of these therapists that says, do your healing work and the wave goes away. 
The wave will be with you till the day you die. It may be less intense as you do your healing work, but it will always be there. You know, I'm a fighter. I grew up in a violent home and I'm a fighter. My wife, Belinda, grew up in a violent home and she's a fighter. And we're a symmetrical couple. Screw me, screw you. Screw me, screw you. Back when the kids were little, 30, 20 years ago, I would be off on the road. I'd come back. Belinda's got a full-time practice. She's a therapist. She'd be there with, with two little kids. And she, I'd come home five days, six days on the road. And she'd be pissed. I can't believe me. You're leaving me with these two kids. Blah, 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 blah. Self-righteous indignation. And whoosh, my fight would come up over me. I like to say my body wanted to bop her in the nose. But being a feminist and an intelligent man, I would relegate myself to verbal abuse. Who the hell do you think you are? I'm on the road teaching all these people how to love each other. And I come home to this bullshit from you and we would be off to the races. Mm -hmm. Then I started doing the work of recovery, relational recovery, the practice of mindfulness. Belinda hits me with the wave of self-righteous indignation. I can't believe you left me with these kids. I feel the wave you know, rise in my gorge. But I take a moment, I take a breath, or 10, we do a lot of breathing in relational work. Breathe into my, breathe myself down. And I breathe myself down from that rage. I breathe myself down from that righteousness. Righteousness is poison. Self-righteous indignation is toxic for a relationship. I don't need it. I look, I get centered. I look at my wife. I don't go through door A, which is the fighting door I've been through a million times. In this moment, I choose door B. I'm sorry, honey. You really had your hands full. Why don't you sit down? I'll put the kids to bed. I'll pour you a glass of wine. We'll talk. You, you, you're overwhelmed. I get it. Let me help out. That is what it's all about. Mm -hmm. Moving beyond that automatic response, taking a breath or 10, uh, a voice in my head literally would come up in the early days of my practice 20 years ago. And you know what it said? That, that, that whoosh would come over me and the healing voice in my head said this, shut up. <laughs> yeah. that's called a containing boundary shut up <laughs> let's talk about neuroplasticity and how we think we have a worldview and we think that's the reality that's the worldview so how do we unblock and create new neural pathways so the implicit becomes explicit I think is what you were talking about in the book yeah well that's what neurobiologists tell us we used to think that once a neural pathway, a habit, a trait was set, it was set in stone. And now we know that our very brains can be reworked and re-modified. And there are two pieces to it. One is making what's implicit explicit, and the other is some form of disconfirming uh, data, some recoil, some, no, I don't want to do this anymore. Um, I'll tell you a clinical story and then we can talk about how people can do it on their own. But first, a therapy story. A guy was verbally abusive to his wife for 20 years. 
And like most verbal abusers, his narrative was, it comes over me too fast, I can't control it. So, show me the thumbprint, I'll tell you about the thumb. Who was the angry one in your family growing up? My stepmother. Tell me about it. She was the meanest, nastiest, angriest. Oh my God, she was a monster. So she's the one who taught you how to be angry. Excuse me? Your stepmother taught you how to be the offensive abuser that you are today. What's it like, I say, to realize that in your marriage, you have become your stepmother? He goes, oh my God. For somebody to see me through those eyes, paint me with that brush, it, it, it's mortifying. <laughs> I say that feeling of embarrassment, that's called healthy shame, remorse. If you had that up front, it would stop you from being abusive, but it's been missing. Let me ask you this, I said. Do you have a picture of your stepmother? No. Can you get one? Yeah. Good. Here's what I want you to do. The next time you're going to rage at your wife, go ahead. I can't stop you. I'm not there. But before you do, you have to promise me you'll do this. Have a picture of your of your stepmother in your pocket or on your phone. <laughs> Pull it out and look at it. Look your stepmother in the eye and say to her this. Right now, acting like you is more important to me than my wife is. And he looks at me and he says, well, that's not true. She isn't. And he says, that would stop me in my tracks. And Michael, honest to God, that was 17 years ago. He has not raised once <laughs> since then. I got to tell you, Terry, you've now covered my father, the colonel, and my stepmother, whose maiden name was Severe. <laughs> <laughs> We're hitting all the trauma stuff. <laughs> right. <laughs> anyway, well, let's talk about the cycle, the uh, repetition cycle, harmony, disharmony, repair, because that's a big part of your work. Yes. I got this from uh, the infant observational researcher, Ed Tronick. And you can look at his um, tapes on, on YouTube, Ed Tronick. Ed, along with Barry Breslin, was one of the first generation of people to stop talking about mothers and infants in a state of oceanic bliss, the way Freud did, and actually stick a camera in front of mothers and infants and see how it really went. And what they found was there was this endless repetition of closeness, disruption, and a return to closeness. The baby starts off, it's called molded. You know, noodle, no bones, totally relaxed in mother's arm. And then there's gas or hunger or a noise or whatever. Baby freaks out. Mother freaks out. They're both freaking out. And then the pacifier is accepted. The gas passes, whatever. And we're back to mold it again. Over and over and over again. And I took this idea and applied it to adult relationships. That I believe that all relationships are an endless rhythm of closeness, disruption, and repair. And moving out of disruption into repair is where all the skills uh, come in. But our culture 
doesn't equip us to deal with the whole uh, cycle, how to move from disruption to repair. Our culture doesn't even acknowledge that disruption exists. A great relationship is all harmony all the time. You know, you're at a cocktail party and somebody says, oh, there's Shirley and Steve. They've been married for 60 years. They're as in love now as they've ever been. Blah, blah, blah. Thank you. You know, I want somebody at a cocktail party to say, oh, there's Shirley and Steve. They separated for a year and a half a couple of years ago, but they found their way back to each other. He had an affair. She had an alcohol problem, but they both did their work, and now they're tolerating each other and having a relatively good time. Aren't they adorable? But we don't talk like that. You know, I've gone around the world for over 20 years talking about what I call normal marital hatred. Normal marital hatred. And I like to say, it's just true, in all those years, not one person has come backstage and said, Terry, what do you mean by that? <laughs> Normal marital hatred is a part of our long-term relationships. There are parts of you that hate parts of her and vice versa, and that's just fine. That's not the problem. The problem is whoever taught you how to deal with this raw, dark, part of all human relationships. Whoever taught you how to get back from disharmony into repair. You know, I do workshops around the country and I have uh, slides like everybody else. Here's my favorite slide of the workshop. Other workshops teach you skills. We deal with the part of you that won't use them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The problem is that when you get into disharmony, when you're disappointed or angry or hurt, you move out of us. You forget that you and your partner are a team and you move into adversarial you and me. You move into the adaptive child. The adaptive child part of us will not use relational skills, doesn't want to. You know, I have a saying, you can be right or you can be married. What's more important to you? Yes, this adaptive child part, you and me part, uh, that question is right, is more important down the line. So here's the wisdom. Our relationships are like our biosphere. We don't live apart from them, we live inside of them. The essential delusion of both patriarchy and individualism is that we stand apart from nature and in control of it. Whether the nature we're trying to control is our partners or our kids or our bodies, I've got to lose 10 pounds, or our thinking, I've got to be less negative. It's all nonsense. Give up power over, give up control, and enter into the wisdom of collaboration. You are not apart from nature, you are a part of nature. And once you realize that you and your partner are a team, that your biosphere uh, sustains you, you move out of power and control. It isn't that your partner wins and you lose. It's that I'm willing to make this particular sacrifice to keep my biosphere healthy because my biosphere will pay me back in the long run. I don't talk about altruism. I talk about enlightened self-interest.
Mm-hmm. You know, some guy says to me, why would I want to give that to her? Why would I want to, you know, sacrifice a weekend of golfing in order to please my wife? Well, I'll tell you. You ready? You live with her. That's why. <laughs> I don't think you know this, but I came out of the corporate world for 35 years doing organizational development work. And I loved what you were saying about emergent relational leadership compared to past-based, non-emergent, hierarchical leadership. I can't tell you how many CEOs and heads of companies I've seen revert to five-year-old behavior, and yet they were very successful in what they were doing. Maybe you can talk about that distinction and how that works. Well, you know, it, it is affecting the corporate world. Uh, old hierarchical leadership is uh, is pretty passe. Uh, even in the corporate world, people have woken up to the idea of empowering uh, the people who you are managing and leading, that leadership uh, should not be direct control of the people that you're leading, but uh, should be facilitating their coming through for you and doing the job. If they can't do the job, get rid of them. That's fine. Uh, but if they, if you are going to work with them, work with them, not at them. And I think one of the places that men in particular are learning relationship skills is, of all places, the corporate world. We call it management training. And uh, the whole of the, cor- you know, we live, see, the hierarchical power over model is obsolete. It no longer fits. We live in an interdependent world. You know, my wife, God bless her, she's a fighter, and she's looking at what's going on with Ukraine, and she keeps saying, why are we letting them get away with it? We should march into Moscow and kill Putin and da 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 And I go, yeah, and trigger World War III. Sounds like a great plan. You know, it's not that simple. We, we can't uh, throw our weight around and tell China what to do because it would be economic disaster. We're all interdependent in this world. When you move from a power over, I'm going to do this to you, to the reality that we're all living in, that we are interdependent with one another, uh, then uh, the rules change and the model changes. To bring it back to our personal life, you can choose to pollute your biosphere by having a temper tantrum over here, but you're going to breathe in that pollution in your partner's distance and withdrawal over there. You are linked. You are not outside the system. You're inside it. And once you have the humility of understanding that you're not God operating on nature, that you're in nature, whether that's a corporation or a marriage or a family or a society or a planet, then you move out of what the Greeks called hubris, delusional pride, delusional pride, which can kill you. I call it grandiosity. One of the things that distinct, to go back to one of your first questions, one of the things that distinguishes, I believe, my work from other therapists is that I focus on grandiosity. The, uh, the delusion that we, we are above and in control is lethal. It will destroy your relationship. 
It will damage your children. It will ruin your body and it could destroy this planet. And us starts with our biology and then moves on. I do that. I talk about the actual history of the idea of individualism. It has a history like any other idea. And then I fade out from our personal relationships to issues like race, uh, patriarchy, and, uh, and ecology. It's the same thing. The delusion that you are superior and above and in control is lethal to all of our relationships inside our skulls, between us and the people we love, and in the planet as a whole. Yeah, I love the way I love the way you bring it back to that individualism, the rugged and the romantic individual and how that how it shapes our relational behavior and how it creates more. It's at the heart of the separation, not just from in relationship or in organizations, but in our relationship to nature and, and, and war. Yes, I write about this throughout the history of war. A great number of uh, men, uh, until very recently, all men, did not fire their weapons. And this is true from colonial days on up. An enormous percentage of soldiers do not pull the trigger because they cannot kill another human being. And I talk about the process of otherization, the process of you versus me, and how central that is. I don't think that you can be empathically connected to another human being and willfully kill them short of self-defense at the same time. You have to be in a one-up state of grandiosity and they have to be some form of subhuman to you. That's what we do in our personal relationships too when we get triggered. We look at our partners through the wrong end of a telescope and they seem small or they seem overwhelming, but what we lose who they are as people. The first step in dealing with that whoosh and coming back into our right mind is what I call remembering love. You remember the person you're about to speak to is someone you care about. And the reason why you're speaking is to make things better. If you don't remember that, if you're, I have five losing strategies that rule the adaptive child part of us. Being right, proving that you're right, controlling your partner, I'll be happy if only you would. Unbridled self-expression, let me ventilate and tell you all about how miserable I am. Retaliation, let me hurt you the way you hurt me. And withdrawal, let me pull down the drawbridge. If you're about any of those five, control being right, ventilating, retaliation, or withdrawal, forget it. You will never get more of what you want. Take a walk around the block. Splash some water on your face. Take a break. I'm a big fan of breaks. Take a break. Get centered in that part of you that can remember that you and your partner are a loving team. And then go back and open your mouth. You know, one of the things I say is maturity comes when we deal with the inner children in us and don't foist them off on our partners to deal with. When an inner child comes up, and you'll know what that is when you're triggered, when you're in extreme reactivity. When you're reactive, it's your business to take a break, take a walk, take a breath, deal with that little boy or girl inside of you, and then get recentered 
and go back into the fray. Do that first, and then you have a snowball chance in hell that things will go well. Don't do that. You can use the greatest skills. Of, I'll say to Belinda, Belinda, I've got some feedback for you. Do you want it? <laughs> <laughs> and she quite smiley says, no, I don't think so. <laughs> the most important question is which part of you is speaking? If it's the loving, mature, wise part of you, the skills will follow. If it's an immature, triggered part of you, you, you won't really use the skills. You'll pretend to be using the skills. So relational mindfulness is getting centered in that mature, loving part of you first and then dealing with whatever the issue is. Yeah, brilliant. You know, one of my things in relationships that gets me into trouble is, well, let's let's look at this objectively. Now, <laughs> this is happening here. And in your book, I saw that line that said, there's no place for objective reality in relationships. And I went, ooh. <laughs> you know, it's a better pill, isn't it? Expand on that one. <laughs> well, objective reality is great for getting trains to run on time or developing, you right. know, scenes. But uh, it, it's a loser in personal relationship. The answer to the question, who's right and who's wrong is who cares? Hey, last night when you yelled at the waiter, oh, honey, I didn't yell. I was being emphatic. Oh, sweetheart, you yelled. Emphatic. Yelled. Emphatic. Well, right. it so happens there was an audiologist at the table next door who had uh, measuring equipment and your decibel level, <laughs> what I call uh, attempting to work your relationship by using the scientific method. It's a loser. From a relational standpoint, nobody gives a shit who's right or who's wrong. What matters is how are you and I going to work like a team to make this work? So were you yelling or were you emphatic? I don't care. Here's what I would have you say. Last night, the way you spoke to the waiter left me feeling embarrassed. As a favor to me, could you please be more careful about the way you speak? Right. Sure, honey. For you, I'll do it. The waiter deserves to be yelled at, but if you're embarrassed, I'll help you out. Thank you, honey. That's very generous of you. It's like a knife through butter. That's great. Let's talk about, well, I come from a lot of trauma and emotional abandonment, you know, how to, how to catch it and to recognize it and the whole area of intrusion, disempowerment. You have a whole chart in there that shows the above and the different aspects of that. Maybe you can explain that a little bit, how that works. Yeah, this is, this is a, a, a workshop unto itself, but I'll be, uh, <laughs> I know. When we think of trauma, we think of one kind of trauma. We think of intrusive, disempowering trauma. Yelling at a kid, screaming at them, ignoring them, uh, not ignoring, yelling and screaming at them, telling them they're bad, controlling them. That's all uh, intrusive and disempowering. But there are other forms of trauma. There's also not the opposite of intrusive, abandoning. Oh, mommy, mommy, I scraped my knee. Well, let me just mix this martini. I'll be right over. That's abandonment. And abandoning intrusive trauma is what was there that shouldn't have been there. Violence, sexuality, a parent's own concern. Uh, abandoning trauma is what should have been there that wasn't there. Attunement, nurture, guidance, limits, parenting. Uh, there are many more children removed from homes 
for neglect than for outright abuse. So emotional neglect does a lot of damage to people. It stimulates the feelings of abandonment as an adult. Now, abandonment is not an adult feeling. Adults don't get abandoned. Adults get left. Abandon is, if you leave me, I die. But if you have abandonment as a trauma in your childhood, when you get left, you get trauma triggered, and it feels like you're going to die. And then you go after the person. Trauma can be intrusive. Trauma can be abandoning. Trauma can be disempowering, as all these examples have been disempowering, which leads to shame. Or trauma can be falsely empowering, which leads to grandiosity. You're the greatest thing since sliced bread. I have a friend. He's an artist. His mom, God bless her, they were at a Picasso exhibit. And his mom turned to him and said, well, you're better than that guy. <laughs> That's false empowerment. <laughs> You know, I have a saying, what are the nine most destructive words in the English language? You understand me better than your father, honey. Mm. That is no favor to the child. Mm. And there are lots of ways that we pump up a kid's grandiosity or don't set appropriate limits on it. And pumping up a kid's grandiosity is no favor to the kid. It leads to grandiosity as an adult, just like shame leads to, just like disempowering leads to shame uh, as an adult. When I was little, my dad was uh, a, a rager and it could be physically violent. I came home with a terrible report card. I was like in second or third grade. My dad laughed and he threw it on the ground. And he said, it's just that you're so smart. Those idiots don't know what to do with you. That's false empowerment. Yeah. I want you to know I got C's, D's, and F's all the way through high school because those idiots didn't know what to do with me, and I was so damn smart. I barely would drop in at school once or twice a week. I was writing. I, I wrote short stories and novels, which did me well in the end. But that was no favor to me to tell me that I was a genius and my teachers were idiots. That's false empowerment. Mm. False empowerment can lead to these issues of entitlement and grandiosity. We believe that if somebody's grandiose, they're really insecure underneath, you know. And if we deal with the wounded child underneath, the grandiosity will go away. Good luck. That's wishful thinking. We have to deal with the grandiosity per se. There's research done half of grandiose narcissistic people are really escaping uh, internal shame. They're really running from shame. The other half just think they're better than you and me. It comes from having been raised by someone who gives them that message. Now, I said that one of the things that distinguishes my work is uh, grandiosity. I'm looking at the intergenerational transmission of these issues. So, for example, when my father was beating me, on the receiving end of his abuse as a child, I was disempowered, made to feel small, unlovable. But he was also modeling for me. He was, trans, particularly same-sex parent, he was transmitting a message to me. When you grow up and you're a man, this is what a pissed off man looks like. It's normal. And indeed, in my younger years, I was a rager, just like my dad. 
These things get passed on from generation to generation, not just through disempowering abuse but and shame, but also through false empowerment, grandiosity, and bad behavior. We have to deal with both ends of the spectrum. One of the things we indirectly talk about, but I think it's important, is when a child doesn't get to be a child. In other words, I, you're my best friend. I don't know what I'd do without you here. I wish your father understood me. Those, those kinds of things that, right. that come up. And, and it really, it robs children of being a child. And right. suddenly you're a raging adult. Can you, right. can you address that a little bit and how it impacts relationships and how to, to, how to begin to notice and modify and feed the child that didn't get to be a child? Well, you know, I like to speak plain English and stay away from jargon as much as I can. So I don't talk about narcissism. I talk about selfishness. One of the things I say is that once you understand that grandiosity, false empowerment of a child is a form of abuse, then you can hold a grandiose adult lovingly and accountably at the same time. So I'll tell you a, a story and a story. Here's the first story. My son, Justin, one of his first play dates, and we live in Boston, and my ADHD, good-hearted son, has a kid over, and it sounds like this. You want to play hockey? You want to play hockey? You want to go out and play hockey? You want to grab a buck? You want to grab a stick? You want to, want to throw a puck around? Hey, you want to play some hockey? This went on for an hour or two. Kid goes home. Justin comes bounding up to me like Tigger and says, do you think he had a good time? And I say, no. And my son is stunned. And I say to him, listen, honey, this is a true story. He's about four. So listen, if you want to do what you want to do, be alone. If you bring somebody else into your world, you have to at least pay some attention to what they want to do. And my little four-year-old looks at me and goes, too much hockey? Okay. <laughs> Now, Chris, both true stories. Chris is a, a captain of industry and his wife on the brink of divorce, takes her to the Caribbean for some R&R, four or five days in the sun, sounds something like this. Chris, the wife, want to have sex, want to get close, want to be physical, want to be intimate, want to be physically intimate, want to hold each other, want to take off our clothes, want to be close, want to be sensual. He comes bounding into therapy with this woman. I ask her if she had a great time, and she says, no. Chris is stunned. What do I do with Chris? It's a true story. What's my therapeutic intervention with Chris? Ready? Yeah. <laughs> I tell him the Justin story. <laughs> and I say to him, Chris, there's a word for what I was doing with my four-year-old son. It's called parenting. It's what you deserved and did not get. Now you have to schlep to Boston. Pay me an arm and a leg so we can install the chip that should have been installed when you were four or five years old. It's not your fault. You didn't ask to be neglected in those ways. You didn't ask to be treated like your God's gift, but you were. And now we have to teach you how to be a relational human being. Mm -hmm. Are you ready? He says, yes, I'm ready. And we began. <laughs> That's how you deal with it. That's great. One of the things that I found important so much in your book, 
and I just want to plug the the us book getting from getting past you and me to build a more loving relationship. I love the idea of the particular. Like you said, you can say particular rather rather than general, and we do generalize a lot. So I'm wondering how that works into ways to yeah. improve our ability to be related in the us sense. Yeah. Well, here's a very concrete tip for for your listener. It's, it's a skill I call staying particular, and it's this: my wife Belinda is inconsiderate. On this Thursday at three o'clock, I was meditating. The phone rang. She she whispers to me, "I'll take the phone call." Walks into the living room and has a chat with her girlfriend without shutting the door. So I'm in the middle of her conversation while I'm trying to meditate and consider a little thing. I get disappointed and even a little angry at that door. Okay, that I call it micro disappointment. Is that Thursday at three o'clock in the middle of that particular meditation? Here's what I don't do: I don't go from that door to the la- other inconsiderate thing she did, to the one she did two weeks ago, the one she did two years ago, into always and never. That's trend talk. She's always so inconsiderate. She never takes care of blah 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 blah. And then you go from trend into character. She's just a self-centered person. That's an escalation, and it digs you into a hole. So, micro disappointment. You stay this much disappointed about this particular moment. You don't jump from there to the trend, the pattern, the always and never, and then from there to the person's character, painting them into a corner and you into a rage. Forget it. That's how people escalate. It's about this one thing gives them a chance to repair this one thing. Now, there is a place for casting a cool eye, looking at patterns, taking a meta view. Well, you know, in our relationship, my experience is often that you this or that or this. There's a place for that, but not in the middle of a heated moment. Don't jump from micro to macro when you're ticked off. Uh, do it from your wise adult self in a moment of sobriety. So how you move into repair uh, is you can repair this one thing and not jump into always and never and you are up. Brilliant. Terry, we're getting close to the end here and I wanted to make sure anything we didn't cover in the next couple minutes, maybe you could talk about a couple of things that are important or just just ways that we can can repair and reconnect in our relationship when we have the the meltdowns. Yeah, I, I want to say one thing about uh, repair. When your partner is in a state of disrepair with you, it's in your interest, wake up, it's in your interest to bring them back into harmony with you. When my wife and I have a fight these days, on, on a good day, We'll take a little break, usually 10, 15 minutes, and then one of the other us will come back and say, uh, you want to fight? I don't really want to fight. You want to fight? Can we Can we really get back on? What do you need, honey? Well, Terry, you could say you're sorry about blood. You know you're right. I, I am sorry. Well, all right. What do you need, Terry? Well, you can own it. You know, there are times when you, blah, blah, okay, okay, I got it. 
Good. You want some tea? Yeah. We're done. Mm. Now, here's what I'm thinking. What I'm thinking when I say, you want to play? I want to play? This is literally what I'm thinking. How do I want to spend my evening? Do I want to spend my evening cuddling with my wife, watching something cool on TV, or do I want to spend my evening sorting out who's right and who's wrong for the next two hours? Mm. You know what? I'd rather the former. That's what I call keeping your wits about you. Remember that you are in the biosphere. Take care of the biosphere. You don't give a damn about your individual rights. You don't give a damn about who's right and who's wrong. Take care of the relationship so that it will take care of you. That's called humility and wisdom. Wonderful. So good to be with you, Terry Real. And the book, again, is Us, Getting Past You and Me to Build a More Loving Relationship. And people can find out more at terryreal.com, R-E-A-L. It's just wonderful to be with you. And thanks for taking the time to be on We Earth Radio. Thank you. It's been a joy, Michael. Keep up the good work. Thanks very much. Bye for now. We Earth Radio is an independently produced program supported by listeners like you. We are committed to bringing you leading-edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. If you would like to receive our complimentary newsletter, The Well of Light, make a contribution, or listen to any of our past shows, go to our website, welloflight.com. Thank you so much for your commitment to a world that works for all life.